Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Uh, We'll be starting at verse 16 today. Um, And today we're also, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be finishing up in our series of What is the Church? And hopefully I'm connected here. Is it working? Awesome. Yes. So we're going to be looking at What is the Church? Uh, This is a series that we've been in, looking at different places throughout uh, the book of Acts and looking at specifically what does this have to say about who we are meant to be as the church. Uh, Just a note on the drawing here. Uh, This was made by Elisa, so if you're looking at it and you're thinking, wow, Steve's really been working on his drawing, he's improving. That's um, not the case. We have Elisa to thank for that one. Uh, So today we're looking at Acts chapter 17, um, looking at verses 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Then They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting at the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of the heavens and the earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God has overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. 
He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they, hear about the, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number, or and a number of others. The word of the Lord. So in the late 1990s, there were two of the fastest growing churches in North America. Uh, both had the same name, Mars Hill. And that was a little confusing for some people because it didn't really seem like a natural name uh, for a church. If you look through your Bibles, you might not know where that name came from. Uh, and that's because uh, we saw Mars Hill show up a couple of times in our passage today. Uh, it just didn't look like it. Uh, that's the translation of Areopagus, um, this hill that Paul gave this um, sermon, this speech to the philosophers in Athens. And the reason why they chose this name of Mars Hill is because Acts 17 and this message that Paul gives is one that pays deep attention to the context that he is speaking to. Paul changes his words and his presentation of the gospel in a way that makes sense to the Athenian philosophers. And the people naming their churches Mars Hill in the late 90s and early 2000s identified that that was something that they were longing to do. They were longing to take the gospel and present it into a different context, to be translators of this gospel message into their culture of their day. So today's message is going to look at how this passage signifies uh, something deep about what context is. And as the title, Context, 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 implies there will be three different ways that we're going to look at it. Um, one is about knowing the right context to share. Two, understanding the cultural context. And three, the gospel being presented in context. Starting with this first one, knowing the right context to share. Uh, so Paul is in Athens here, and as I alluded, we got this image here of Athens. And there are a couple of places mentioned in Athens. One of them is the marketplace. Uh, so in this picture, we have the marketplace would be right here. Uh, there'd be surrounding um, houses kind of all the way around. And this was a central place for people to gather. Um, th there's these larger buildings that are all around the marketplace, and as we look at that, we can make note that this isn't simply um, a grocery store, this isn't just a place to get your produce every day, this is the central place of, of commerce. This is where the big banks are, and more importantly, this is where people would be coming in from foreign lands. Uh, this is where new information would come and where people would expect to be engaging with new ideas. So Paul locates himself in the marketplace. A couple other places that are mentioned here is the Areopagus. Again, that's 
what is Mars Hill. Um, this is this rocky outcrop um, near the center of the city, and this was the famous place for where philosophers would meet. So people would travel all around the known world. If you wanted to be a big name in philosophy in that day, this was kind of the, the Oxford of the day, you would do your pilgrimage to this space and to meet with the other philosophers. And right across from that is the Acropolis. Now, the, the Acropolis would have been one of the major landmarks of the ancient world. Uh, I have a picture of it from uh, when I was out in that area, and it just still stands to this day as this major feature, this big rocky um, outcrop there and right here. So the marketplace is down at the bottom. Just a few minutes walk up, you have the Mars Hill, and then a few minutes going that way is the Acropolis. And something important to note about the Acropolis is Parthenon. Uh, one of the most well-known temples of the day was right there. Uh, so this was the, the best thing that human hands had been able to create in that day is sitting right from where Paul is giving his speech within eyes view. Uh, another thing just to point out, we have another theater there, uh, a place where philosophical ideas would be presented, poetry and different plays. So Athens is this center, and with this different option of different places to go, Paul chooses not necessarily to go straight to the Areopagus. Uh, he knows how things work. He needs to be invited there first. He doesn't go straight to the temples and where they are and start denouncing them. But Paul, understanding his context, understanding where he is called to be, sits himself in the marketplace. He goes to the place where debate and new information is naturally shared. He goes to the right context to be sharing these sorts of things. So this, this isn't Paul um, when we read Marketplace, he's not going to Superstore or to the mall and just starting to talk to people. This is Paul going to the place where news comes, where influence is, where discussion is welcome. So a question that I think we need to be considering as we look at this and where Paul even chooses himself or to place himself in these early verses is, what is it like to consider the marketplace equivalence in our society? Do we know the context where sharing our faith is appropriate and best received? Do we actively place ourselves in those spots? Do we have a way of engaging with the places that are fixed at the center of our society? If we believe that Christianity has something truly good and something truly beautiful to offer, then there should be nothing stopping us from engaging and presenting it in that space. Second, understanding the cultural context. Um, for the second point, Paul is moving now. He's been asked to go from the marketplace, and he's presenting something at the Areopagus. He's in the presence of esteemed philosophers at this point. Now, when you think of Athens and its reputation, I want you to think of an owl. And here's an owl coming to fly in there. 
Different cities have different nicknames. We, we know this, uh, New York being the Big Apple or the city that never sleeps. Um, Athens would have had a nickname in its day, and that would have been the, the bright-eyed city. Um, Athens would have been kind of an owl-like city in a way. Uh, the people of Athens had a particular reputation of being able to see things that other people couldn't see. So like an owl being able to sharply see in the night, um, the things that seemed like darkness for other societies. The Athenians had this reputation of seeing clearly through the mist and through the darkness and through the mystery. They, they prided themselves in engaging that philosophical thought. This even comes up in Luke's comment here, that all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent no doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. They, they were people who were focused in and wanted to see clearly what others were not able to see. But Paul notices in the midst of this that they have a blind spot. Um, he is attentive to the cult culture and the context around him, and he sees that they have an altar made for an unknown God. And he notes that these are people that cannot grasp everything. And he brings this to the presentation of the people. So he, when, when he goes to the Areopagus, when he goes to Mars Hill, he doesn't just take out the five verses from his back pocket and just blast them with the same gospel presentation that he's given in so many different places before, but he adapts it to a particular context. He incorporates new information for the proclamation of the gospel. He points out that he knows who this unknown God is. And he notes that um, God created us in such a way that we are to seek him and reach out for him. Uh, the, the words that uh, he uses for reach out for him in that passage is, is literally uh, a grasping or, or groping. It's, it's the image that you would have of someone blindly trying to find this God. So he sees that they, they name this unknown God, and he sees a, a people that are just trying to grasp and see who is this God that is out there. There's this desire that is built within them for something more. And then he announces that he knows who this unknown God is for them. Also, turning to his context, um, he also mentions that God is not limited to a temple. And remember the context that he's in here. He is standing right here on the Areopagus by in sight line of one of the biggest and most impressive temples made by human hands. And he makes this announcement that God is not limited to the temples made by human hands. The, the offerings that would have been presented there, the sacrifices that would have been presented to appease the gods, he includes, God doesn't need to have these sacrifices. In fact, God is the one from whom all life comes. He doesn't need to have people feeding him. Again, he is speaking directly into that context in ways that these people could understand and would have visual aids to kind of help them understand what he is saying. Paul goes beyond using um, these illustrations of the places around him 
he actually goes so far as quoting the poets. Uh, when Paul says, for in him we move and have our being, and we are his offspring, if you look at your Bibles there, those are in quotation marks. Um, but if you look through the rest of scriptures, you won't find those quotes in there because he's actually quoting philosophers from the third and fourth centuries. Uh, his, it might be a little surprising to us that Paul is quoting um, people from a non-scriptured tradition. He's quoting philosophers and poets in order for these people to understand more of who God is. And he uses these sources because he actually sees them as illuminating and directing them towards God. So rather than simply arguing in terms of human scripture or Hebrew scriptures, he is well studied enough in their culture and their understanding where he can show how their own philosophers help point them towards God. And why does Paul do this? Well, if he, if he just started and stayed only with the Hebrew scriptures, he would have lost them before he started. He may as well be speaking a different language. Speaking the gospel in the same way to each group of people could actually hinder in their hearing and receiving of the gospel. Without recognizing this new context and the proclamation of the good news, they wouldn't have had a space of understanding. They need some foundation of contextualization. So our question here for us then is, are we able to do this? Do we pay attention to the culture around us? And do we listen closely enough to what our culture's longings are? Notice Paul identifies what they long for in that culture, that they are seeking, that they're trying to find who this unknown God is, and that that is something that is built into them from God himself. Do we listen closely enough to be able to identify the longings towards God? Um, Paul, in paying attention to the other people in their context, says, I see your spiritual hunger. I see you longing and grasping for me, and here is the nourishment that I have found. Here is God as God has revealed himself to me. I see him serving as a model for the church, as a person who is able to present the gospel into this new culture, that we as a community ought to show that we know how to speak the gospel into different contexts to different times and places as they require it. So what are some places where, um, as a church, we can be practicing this whole idea of speaking into the context? Uh, you can brainstorm your own, and there, I'm sure it could be a long list, um, but just three different and spaces, one being our worship services. This is a space where we can be welcoming others in. And we should be asking ourselves constantly, how are we showing ourselves aware of our current cultural context? How can we be providing a place that communicates the holiness and the goodness of God? From the songs to the liturgies to the sermons and the prayers, are we seeking to have a service that is deep and meaningful for those who are searching and grasping for a sense of a transcendent God? 
Uh, this, this also um, is impacted in our education. Um, and I can think particularly uh, for how we, we educate our, our youth and our children. Are, are we repeating what we learned and simply um, parroting or just repeating um, the same values and enforcing it onto a new generation growing up in a different context? Or are we helping them in helping to translate into that context? Or, or more importantly, are we also giving them permission to grapple with it and own it for themselves, that they can speak these truths into their context as well? Um, a third section or a third area where we can be using contextualization is in our outreach and mission, as Paul is doing here. And something that we, again, should be asking of ourselves is, are we adapted in the way in which we're reaching out into our community? Or are we using techniques that, that no longer translate well into our current culture? Where um, it's been said of our, our current day that Christianity and its values are less and less an assumed starting point of the conversation. Uh, we're living in a society that's increasingly being called post-Christian, where Again, these Christian values are no longer as much at the center, and that changes how we engage with our neighbors, our neighborhoods, and our communities. Knowing the context is important because, again, this will impact how the gospel is perceived by others. And that leads to the final point here. The gospel in context the gospel is always presented in a context, but it is always the gospel that is presented, and that's the key point here. Uh, we're not in this to change what the gospel is. The preservation of the meaning of the gospel is central to what Paul is doing here. He's presenting the same gospel but using different words so that the people in Athens in their different contexts can understand. So even though he's talking to a different people in a different context, he doesn't flinch in proclaiming the good news of the gospel. He doesn't change the content. And he is able to do this because he is first submersed in God's word and God's teachings. He's been surrounded by other brothers and sisters in faith, and he has anchored himself. And it's from that space of anchoring that he can confidently present the gospel in different ways. By verse 30, Paul says to these sharp-eyed philosophers of uh, Athens that there is no more an excuse of ignorance we know who the unknown God is, and the only proper response is repentance so that we can be united with the one that you've been seeking the whole time, uh, the, the one that you've been grasping for uh, kind of blindly. We know who that God is. His gospel proclamation, if we look back into this passage, centers in on the resurrection. He tells them that God's new world has begun in the resurrection and that this is great news. The one who has set things right in, in defeating death and sin will bring the world to justice. He will judge the world and do away with the brokenness as he brings everything into renewal. So 
So again, while his description changes, what does not change here is the gospel itself. And, and I repeat that um, because that's one of the dangers that comes when we look at context and contextualization. There's a word, uh, when I was doing my undergrad and studying uh, intercultural studies or the missions program there, a word that would come up a lot is syncretism. Uh, syncretism is the word that they would use, especially in terms of the gospel, of a watering down of the gospel or changing the gospel itself to make it more palatable or to make it easier for us to grasp. And that changing of the gospel was something that we'd have to be on our guard for and avoiding. One story that always stood out to me uh, that was told by a missionary was of a, a farmer who um, it was carrying his uh, pails of milk to the marketplace. And, and on his way there, he thought, well, I can make a little bit more money if I just add uh, some of this water here into it. So he adds the water into those pails and gets to the marketplace. Um, but unfortunately for him, there was a person there um, who had something that could detect uh, foreign contaminants in the milk. I'm not sure how it worked, but apparently that was part of the story. Um, and the person, when he saw that this had been diluted with the water, he dumped out the buckets, making this big scene, saying that this was not an acceptable thing to do. We are not people... Um, the milk is no longer something that helps them nourish and, and be healthy people. In fact, these foreign contaminants could actually um, make people sick. And it was something that would not be permitted in their space. And the missionary makes that connection into what the gospel message is. The same goes for the gospel. We can't tolerate diluting or changing of the gospel message itself. We can change how we present it into new contexts, but we have to do so with the, the confidence that the gospel message is being preserved. And we saw this with Paul. Uh, he speaks the gospel and actually enhances their ability to be able to understand what's being said there. And when we look at Paul, we, we know that Paul has done his homework. Um, he's grown up in this tradition. And he even spends some extra time in Tarsus uh, dialoguing with the brothers and sisters in Christ so that he can be confident in preserving the integrity of the gospel into new contexts. Uh, the challenge for the church then is do we know the gospel message well enough to be able to speak it into new contexts without watering it down? Are we willing to do the hard work of truly studying God's word and familiarizing ourselves with who God is? Um, spending time before God and actually having God change our hearts and our minds. That we can actually speak of this in context outside of our own culture. That we can walk alongside younger generations and equip them to grapple with the faith themselves. Um, this is one of the things about the, the gospel message, something I've alluded to already. Uh, we can give our best guesses on how to contextualize to the next generation or to cultures that aren't our own. Uh, Paul does a good job here um, modeling that for us. But in our work of speaking the, into other people's contexts can only go so far. 
At some point, the ownership transitions to the people of that culture where they have to do the grappling of the gospel and speak it to others um, who are in that same setting. So for in Athens, it names two people as well as others, Dionysius and Damaris. They are ones that are then called to own the faith for themselves. They're not about just trying to memorize what Paul said and take his word, but the believers are to take this um, into a relationship with who God is. So my last encouragement then for you is to study God's word, to go deep into this word, to know it inside and out, to know what other Christians have spoken about it, to know our, our statements of faith, our confessions and creeds. No, we, we spoke the Apostles' Creed earlier today, and afterwards in the song, we, we spoke uh, the question and answer of Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer number one. Uh, do we know our confessions and creeds and what they have to say about what the gospel is and who God is? Alongside that, of course, is are we spending time before God ourselves? Are, are we having our own hearts shaped and transformed by being in front of God? I'd like to invite the uh, worship team forward. So I give uh, the last encouragement here is that we should be spending time um, engaging with these things now to not wait on this, because we don't know when we'll be called to speak God's truth. I think it would be of special interest of us to actually look back in our passage of where it starts. Uh, Paul starts, or Luke starts his description of Paul in Athens as, while Paul was waiting in Athens. Uh, this is actually happening in an in-between time for Paul's ministry. Uh, this is not one of the key places that Paul is being sent on his missionary journey. Paul is actually waiting on others to come. But his waiting doesn't give him an excuse to just sit there and do nothing. He is seeking God's will and following God even in these in-between times. And I think sometimes we treat God's calling like that. We say to the extent, I, I don't really know where God is calling me, so I'm just going to sit and wait until I have a definitive answer. Paul's waiting sends him into the synagogues and into the marketplace. As he waits, he continues in using God's gifts as God has given them. So may it be the same for us. We all likely experience times, these in-between times, Times where we don't know God's specific call for us, but there's no excuse here for doing nothing. There is always a space for keeping our eyes open for the right context, for sharing, continuing to understand the culture, and to deepen our resolve for the gospel. That through God's work in us, we may see the gospel spread in our church, in our community, and beyond. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, we thank you that you are Lord and sovereign over all for your resurrection life that started with, uh, started the new life for all peoples. 
May we be steeped in your word in such a way that we gain a better sense of who you are and how you've revealed yourself in this world. Give us eyes to look through the word towards the God it proclaims and the grace that you give. May we have the patience and perseverance in studying it and knowing your word. We may have times of joy in being illuminated by who you are. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. Give us imaginations to translate the goodness of who you are into new cultures. Give us the courage to trust new generations that highlight different facets of your truth. May we show the goodness of your church into every new context, every new place, every culture, that we can proclaim who you are wherever we go. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.